Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Paul Martino, one of the co-founders of Bullpen Capital, a firm that started in 2010 and originated the term post-seed investing. As you'll hear on the show, Paul is one of the most transparent and contrarian thinkers in venture and continually looks for opportunities in places very few do. He's also fun listen, and in this episode, we talk about the challenges of fundraising with a completely different model, what it truly takes to be contrarian, how VC has evolved over the years, and the role of SPACs. Now let's take a dive into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey Paul, thanks for being on the show. Great to hear from you. Glad to be here. You and I have known each other since you uh, began the journey at Bullpen back in 2010. It's amazing to hear that it's been 11 years. But you started off as an entrepreneur running a company called Aggregate Knowledge for about five years. And I want to go back and understand what led you from going from the operator side to the venture side, and then ultimately teaming up with uh, Rich and Duncan back in 2010. Yeah, it was all Mike Maples' fault. I mean, that's the easy way to tell the story. Mike, as he was going from Maples Capital to become Floodgate and become literally one of the best investors of this generation, you know, he was trying to figure out how to grow the fund. And him and I had become buddies because of Mark Pincus. Uh, literally, it's one of my favorite stories. Mark Pincus decided to blow him off at a meeting years ago. And I was Mark Pincus's fill-in back in the tribe days. Mike Maples and I became friends ever since that meeting. And so I angel invested. I was in a couple cool deals like Zynga, like you to me. And Mike said, look, you're good at this. I know you're going to sell aggregate knowledge. Why don't you come join me at Floodgate? And I was like, no, dude, Mike, you guys are a bunch of weenies. Like running, running a venture firm, that's a sellout. I'm an entrepreneur. I want to I go, go build stuff still. And he's like, yeah, Paul, but you got to understand the whole ecosystem is changing. People like Josh Koppelman are changing the business. And I was an early LP in first round. And he's like, you got to start paying attention. The whole business is getting taken over by former operators. And, and so I started, you know, daydreaming about where are the holes in the ecosystem? Where are the entrepreneurial opportunities? And Duncan and Rich were two of my angel co-investor buddies. And we started hanging out at Rich's place. And, you know, about a year into it, we're like, wow, there's going to be a huge gap between seed and A because there's an explosion of seed funds. How are we going to solve that problem? And me and Duncan went back to Maples' office and said, hey, there's going to be a problem here. And Mike just started laughing. He's like, I know you didn't want to become a venture guy, but the only way you're going to solve this problem is if you start a venture fund. Martino, the joke is on you. It's such a great story. And I do actually remember like you starting and coining this whole post-seed before post-seed was a thing. And I, I think at that time, a lot of people really didn't understand that there was this gap, not only between Angel and Series A, but traditional seed and Series A. But when you guys went out and raised that first fund, it was still such a novel concept. How did you go about building the story and what did that first raise look like? There is a special ring of hell when you design a venture fund with a unique model and you speak to LPs. You and I had this discussion many times in your office where we would literally get kicked in the teeth going, that's never going to work. That's a dumb idea. Why don't you just do what other venture people do? We're like, no, guys, you got to understand there's a big gap between seed and A. It's going to be a permanent structural feature of the ecosystem as we go from we go from 20 seed funds to 200. And as you know, we're at like 1100 now. So the, so the joke was really even bigger than we thought that this gap would be there. And, oh, Paul, it's a short term arbitrage. You'll make money maybe in one fund and then it'll go away. Well, we're 11 years and five funds in. It, the gap is even bigger now than it was when we started. But yeah, those early days of raising money were 
I mean, they were frustrating as all get out because we were walking in there talking about something that we knew was true. And the LPs had no idea how to buy anything new or different. They were like, so what fun did you spin out of? I'm like, well, I didn't. I'm an entrepreneur and there's an entrepreneurial endeavor in front of me. Well, that sounds weird. You know, maybe come back when you're on your eighth fund. So, okay. So, yes, there is a special for any GPs out there. And you know this. If you're doing anything truly different in this business, your first fund or two are exceptionally difficult to raise. My first two funds were exceptionally difficult to raise. And only through sheer will did we make it through those two funds. So when you go back and and sort of think about like, hey, we're raising under this novel concept. People really don't get it. What were the things that you sort of observed as, hey, we have to evolve the way we tell our story? Was it very clear that from the feedback, did you guys adjust your story or did you say, look, we have high conviction and we're just going to find believers? What did that actually look like when you went through those meetings and people said, hey, you're crazy to try to raise a fund under this investment thesis? So funds one and two were largely friends and family. We had one institutional investor who took a bet on us, and that was Greenspring. And they're in all of our funds. And, and really, I, I cannot thank them enough. They were the one group that really said, you know, I kind of don't know if this works, but, you know, if they're right, we better be in this and just in case they're right. Because I don't, I, I honestly am not sure that they believed us when they wrote the check, but I think they almost viewed it as a bit of a hedge in case we were right to have access to these kinds of companies that be overlooked and fall into the gap. Certainly that's what happened. But I think maybe the more relevant part of the story is when we got to the third fund and Eric Wiesen had joined me and I told him, I said, Eric, we have two great funds. I mean, we've got Ipsy, we've got Braze, we've got, uh, we've got FanDuel, we've got Carbon Health and Jack Pocket. Like our first two funds have some killer companies. Let's go out and raise fund three together. This shouldn't be as hard. And the first couple months, we got kicked in the teeth again. And I must admit, Eric kind of was like, what the hell did I sign up for? I thought this was going to be our big coming out party that we had finally arrived. I was the new partner in town and we had a great set of companies and we're getting the same questions. And the guy who really figured it out in our fund, what we were doing wrong was Rich Melman. I know I'm going to make a political analogy here because it's what he told me, but we were gearing up for the 2016 presidential election. And, and it was clear that it looked like the nominations were going to be Trump and Clinton. And Melman comes into the office one day. It's like the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, or I forget what the time frame was. And Eric and I had come out of the set of meetings where we again got kicked in the teeth. He's like, you know what, Martino? You two guys are like Hillary Clinton. You're going in there all wonkish, talking about structural arbitrage and gaps between seed and A. And, oh, Mike Maples is my buddy. His LPs don't want to hear about that. You know, this other guy, Trump, he goes out and says, it's going to be huge. Go out and talk about all the companies that you're making money on. Nobody gives a shit about anything else. And we completely inverted the pitch and made it company-led in the front and thesis-led in the back. And I'll be damned, all of a sudden, people started giving us money. So I give Rich the big insight that sell them what they know how to buy, not what they don't know how to buy. Be more like it's going to be huge as opposed to I'm a wonk who knows math. And I do remember when you guys were raising Fund 3 and you did have all these great companies from Fund 1 and Fund 2. But during that time, like those, those six years between that, the launch of the firm and getting into Fund 3, and we'll get into Eric in a minute and building the team. At that time, like the number of seed funds had grown to a few hundred. Post-seed was a thing. You had run the, the conferences. There was a number of people that were now post-seed investors. Did that question come up and say, hey, look, you guys were the post-seed guys. Now there's a lot of post-seed people starting off with a company pitch or like, you know, all these great companies. 
But didn't that still come up as an objection? Like, where is your differentiation in going after those type of companies? So it turns out that, you know, I, I appreciate the question, but I, I, I think it's more uh, misleading than not, because in almost all of my pitches, Samir, we would show up and they go, yeah, Martino, this post-seed thing seems kind of cool. How come you're the only one firm dumb enough to be doing it? Because they were confused by that. They're not used to that. Yes, there were a couple companies, right? Runway Capital and the guys at Venture 51, right? There were only a few of us, though. And so it was actually more of a problem that there weren't more of us, meaning the ground was safe to invest, than that how are you going to differentiate? We were the winners in a category no one, wanted to, no one knew if they wanted to invest in, though. So, so we had a very different problem, which was convincing them that this was a real thing. And I remember one of our reference calls to one of our key LPs, one of our advisors who will m- remain anonymous here, basically said, you know, I was an early seed investor and, you know, my reward for being an early seed investor were a thousand copycats. Martino's reward for being the first person to figure out post-seed is no one believes him. <laughs> I'm like, that is a pretty funny dichotomy. But the other thing, though, right, that, you know, has always struck me about your investing, it's, okay, so there was a post-seed, and obviously that was a big part of the uh, structural gap that you saw. But there was also this way you guys have invested, and you've invested in certain industries. Uh, You brought up FanDuel, you brought up Jackpot, which is, um, you look at these industries that a lot of VCs don't invest in. I want to understand that mentality. Like, what is the other part of that thesis that people don't know about bullpen? Like, what type of companies are you comfortable that most people either overlook or completely stray away, you know, away from? So we started by being off by one by stage. Post-seed, you're out of the cadence of the usual fundraising by definition. But once we started investing, we realized our companies were off by one another axes. They were out of geography. They had founders who didn't go to fancy schools. And they were in categories people didn't like. So one of our earliest and most famous deals, FanDuel, was off on all of them. Husband and wife team, Edinburgh, Scotland, fantasy sports. I mean, you can't get more out of favor on all those axes than that. And as that company started taking off, we started realizing post-seed was not just about stage off by one. It was about looking for these unloved companies. And Jack Pocket and Fun 2 is one of my favorite examples. You know, Pete Sullivan, the CEO looks like the bouncer in a Brooklyn nightclub. I mean, he literally looks that way, right? He talks that way. His dad was a beat cop in Brooklyn. And Pete looks and sounds the part that I'm describing. And he shows up with a slide in his deck that says, you know, hey, venture people, do you know that if you add together all of the markets of music, television, video, of this, that, and other thing, it's smaller than lottery? If you add them all together, it's my favorite slide in any deck I've ever received, it is smaller than the lottery. And people would look at the deck and go, well, that can't be true. And they would say that not because it wasn't true, but because they themselves didn't buy lottery tickets, not because Pete was wrong. And I looked at that slide and I just smiled. I go, Pete, a person with your affect, your stage presence, saying you're all wrong about how big my market is, come to Bullpen. We are your investors. Like We are purpose-built for you. And sure enough, we went into that round. That company is going to be a gangbuster outcome. Its largest competitor, Lottery.com, went public via SPAC on Monday. I think that we're in the superior company of the two of them. And Pete is every bit the same person I described now as he was then, misunderstood, overlooked because of who he was and where he was from, and lottery tickets. Who would even think lottery is that big of a... It's the biggest market in the United States, and you overlooked him because you don't buy lottery tickets. 
that was a big lesson for us, that there were huge blind spots in the venture ecosystem related to the bias of the, uh, of the GPs. So when you look at these type of companies, and, and a lot of people that are listening to the pod are people that are earlier in, in their careers, or at least just starting their funds. And we all know that some of the best outcomes are investing against the crowd and, and being right. But you also take the risk of being wrong. Because of that, a lot of people invest in things that are, you know, let's call it mainstream, trend-based. You know, the thought there is like if I invest in a bunch of seed companies that are likely to get their follow-on, I get some markups, it makes my next fundraise easier. What was your mental model given the fact that the first three funds were actually really difficult to raise? How'd you get comfortable just taking some huge different bets that were off axes without really thinking about what that actually meant from an LP standpoint and raising that next round of, uh, or the next fund? When Eric Wiesen, who we'll talk about in a minute, how we grew the fund, joined us, and I forget if it was 2015 or 2016, it was when we were doing fund three. He, he actually asked me during the interview process, I think maybe one of the most prescient questions asked in an interview process, he said, look, Martino, you, you, you've run successful companies, you've already got some big companies in funds one and two. Like, why do you do this? Like, why do you wake up in the morning and work as hard as you do doing what you're doing, coaching these CEOs, quite frankly, finding first timers who, who have been discarded by other people? I was like, Eric, do you know how emotionally satisfying it is when you take one of those companies back to Sand Hill and get to do a victory lap and say, I told you so to everybody? I don't care how old I am, that will never stop being fun. And and the, the five-year-old kid in me who likes to say I told you so is kind of why bullpen works, because there is something so emotionally satisfying about backing the underdog and showing the rest of the ecosystem that they missed it. Uh, and that is at the essence of bullpen. And you will not be a good bullpen partner or investor unless you have that mindset. What attributes then do you think a good investor, and let's let's take bullpen, you know, as part of your ethos is looking at and being comfortable with these overlooked, underappreciated type of deals and founders, what does that mental model have to look like for, for a partner, like, or any investor that's looking at those deals? Like, what attributes do, do you have or does Eric have that allows you to do that? Strong personal conviction in a deal. We do not have a normal a partner process for deciding on deals. Our, our partner decision process is, as I would describe, is somewhat unusual in the business. Our new partner, Ann Lai, joined us. And part of the reason that we picked her when we did our search was we knew that she would stand up to her convictions in a partner meeting. Because there's no votes at Bullpen. It's not like, oh, here are the three deals in front of us. Okay, do we have three? Do we have three positive votes among the five partners? Yes or no? No, no, no. It's not like that at all. You come in and have found an ugly duckling to some extent, and off by one. You have conviction to know that this is going to work, and you're going to coach it up, and you're going to fix the one or two things that are off by one. By the way, these are not broken companies. They're up and to the right, but there's something a little funny about them. That's very different. We don't go into recaps and founder changes. We're not in that business. But we are in the business of, of making sure those rough edges in those two or three areas you're getting dinged by the ecosystem get fixed. So we couldn't possibly have a voting process. Anne might literally be the only person in the world who believes in this deal, including me, and I'm her partner in the fund. And so you have to stand up in the partner meeting and go, I've done all the homework. Here's why this can be a big outcome. I have high conviction about this. And then me and Eric and Duncan and Rich, we get to check her work. Like, did you do this? Did you do that? What did you think about this and that? And if she hasn't done her homework, she'll get her butt kicked by us. 
But there's no vote at the end where, okay, Anne, you've got to get four of us to vote. No, you have to just show that you've done the work. And guess what? You get to go do the deal. A very different partner process. And I think required when you're doing these contrarian kinds of deals. Once the deal is done, is the entire partnership helping that portfolio company or is it partner by partner as you have these high conviction vets, you are the person that helps it? Like, what does that partnership dynamic look like from the perspective of helping companies? I understand the voting or there's no voting and each person has the ability to the degree that they've done the homework to uh, get a deal through and get done. But what does it look like post-investment? You get the whole team and then some. We actually have a whole services department headed by Andrew Trader, AT, started Zynga, Core Metrics, and Madison Reed. He, he runs a full CEO coaching practice. We have a CFO in residence, and we have a, a program called Full Pen, which is our advisor network of executives that we can help you get introduced to to work on issues facing your company. I think you've sat in on some of our Full Pen investor meetings where we have the broader group come in once a, once a month and really gang tackle a deal. So a perfect example of this is when our companies are getting ready to raise their next round. We have a whole boot camp on how to do your deck right, how to target your next round investors the correct way. Anne has a whole workshop on how to present data in a smart way. And by the way, she'll do that for my deal. So if I'm in a deal and it's time to raise, they're going to go through Anne's boot camp on data. They're going to go get AT CEO coaching help. And so while Anne will know much more about her deals and I'll know much more about my deals, we're all in on all of the deals as opposed to being siloed. So it is funny. You kind of get in in a siloed way because one person has conviction. But once you're in the family, we all gang tackle you. As you built out that effectively services platform, which, which I really love because I do think at the end of the day, the venture industry is a service business in helping your portfolio founders in whatever really they need to get to the next level of development. There's also the aspect of as you add team members and you're getting a bunch of people doing different things, the culture that an ethos that you build from day one, how do you actually maintain it? You have such a unique way of looking at the world, both from an investing standpoint, as well as the way you run your partnership. What do you do to maintain that level of that contrarian culture? And how does that continue over time? It really continues because of the founders who walk in our office and why they walk in our office. Ultimately, the energy, the passion you get is when you get somebody to come into the office and they, they spend the first five minutes going, you know, I talked to 20 other firms. No one gets this. Like, I heard I need to talk to you. It is invigorating every time a CEO who is in a category who nobody understands or went to a school no one is impressed by comes in and vents for five minutes and says, hey, geez, you know, I just got my butt kicked by this, this and this. Here's what I'm doing. Do you think this is interesting? That is the source of huge energy because our CEOs teach us about categories we wouldn't have known about. They talk to us about lessons that you would have otherwise not learned. And that is just, I think that will stay satisfying as long as we stay in business. And that cycle keeps going and going. And by the way, it's the secret to our sourcing. You know, people ask us all the time, they're like, Martino, how do you source? I'm like, I do a podcast like Samir's and I tell founders, are you overlooked? Come see me. And guess what? They show up. I don't have a team of 10 people sourcing because I got a unique message to a founder. And when you have a unique message to a founder and there's 1,100 early stage funds, those founders who resonate with that message are going to come see you. It is very clear the type of founders that will likely self-select in many ways to what you guys do. But the market's changed so significantly, right? Since you started, you brought up, you know, 1,100 firms. 
there, there actually may be much, much more than that based on our account of like the number of seed firms that have even come up over the last 12 months. But it's also segmented, right? There's stage and there's specialists and there's big firms coming down market. How are you reacting and responding to the different competitive forces that are out there? And like, how have you guys changed the way you do things to, to respond? I know you've increased fund sizes. But what else have you done? Remarkably, we actually haven't done much. And it's not because we're lazy. I actually think we're some of the most hardworking people in the business. It's because the spot that we sit at is a permanent structural feature. When you think about the fund sizes of those 1,100 or 1,200 or 2,000 funds on the left, and you think about the fund sizes of the funds on the right, the, the Series A funds, there is always going to be this gap between companies that raise money between company funds that were less than $200 million and over $200 million. And so while I've had to bob and weave a little bit in that gap, I have stayed in that gap for 11 straight years. And I think like a black hole, there's always going to be that event horizon. There's always now going to be a gap between big funds and small fund investors. And playing that gap, I don't think ever goes away. So sure, maybe my checks are more like $3 million into five rounds instead of $2 million into four rounds before, but that's a pretty minor difference in the crazy 11 years that have gone by that the fund has started. You mentioned Mike Maples earlier, and Mike has always said that your fund size is your business model, which uh, I do ascribe to for many reasons. But as you've increased your fund size, obviously the size of seed rounds has increased. You have more in reserves for these companies during those follow-ons. But are there other considerations that make these larger fund sizes more complex? Are there certain decisions you have to make differently? And for you, has anything really changed? At the end of the day, it really is just about reserves. When we did our first deal, Alex Bard, we did a Sisley, which got bought by uh, Salesforce. He's now over at Redpoint. Uh, he was the CEO of Campaign Monitor. It was our first deal. <laughs> I remember telling Alex, we'd only had $8 million raised at the time. I'm like, Alex, you're my first deal. You're my guinea pig. I may never have another check for you. And every founder in Fund One, we told them we have no money for follow-on. We don't have that luxury. Our $8 million fund at a second close, and we made it to 24. And our second fund was $30 million. Same deal. Basically, no reserves. And so when we get to our third fund, it's finally $86 million. And the only real difference is I can write follow-on checks. I'm doing this. I'm, yeah, the round size is a little bit bigger. But the primary difference is I can now write reserve checks. I can go into the next round. And then I get into my fourth and fifth funds that are in the 125, 135 range. I can now write a check into the next two rounds. But the number of deals, the kind of size and valuation range, almost identical across all five funds. That's actually really interesting. And, and I hadn't realized that you were doing no reserves out of fund one and fund two. And that's actually something that a lot of smaller fund managers have to deal with, where those reserves, if they do them, are through SPVs, which present their own set of challenges. I want to zoom out for a second. I really like looking at the spectrum of the venture universe. And yes, there's like 2,000 firms on the left side and on the right side, which are the life cycle firms. You know, it's a much smaller number and it's very concentrated from a capital standpoint. What does venture look like in the next 10 years? What do you think are going to be the main trends? Obviously, the last 10 years has been the rise of the seed. Do you see some micro trends emerging right now? Or what do you think we'll, we'll see over the next few years? I know you're going to cringe when I say it, but I think the SPAC thing may actually be for real. 
I know we're in a bubble. Let's make no mistake. We are in a crazy SPAC bubble right now. And by the way, DraftKings, FanDuel's competitor, kicked it off. We, you know, that, that we had the option of going public at FanDuel, and ultimately uh, DraftKings did it and kicked off the whole craze. But I fundamentally think that the SPAC is not just about the money grab that it is right now for a lot of people. It is actually bringing back the small IPO. Right. When I was first an entrepreneur in the mid 90s, you know, you had this thing called a small IPO. You'd raise 100 to 200 million dollars at a 500 million dollar valuation and you go public. And over the last decade, with the explosion of seed and all the funds becoming mega funds, the small IPO went away. You had to be 10 billion dollars in market cap to go public. I think that the SPAC is now going to be a permanent thing, not because of the economics money grab of the promote. But because it's finally given us a way to get our smaller companies public, I think this has profound implications to our business in terms of our liquidity profile and how we then play the game of company growth. I'm very happy about this. And Duncan, my partner, has been a big advocate for saying we finally replaced the small IPO that went away as the result of socks and a bunch of other things that happened you know, a decade or two ago. You're right. I mean, in the 90s, and I guess even in the really, really early part of 2000, we saw a number of those boutique investment banks doing those small IPOs. What does it mean for venture? What does it mean for seed managers that now have maybe shorter liquidity profiles? Do you see more capital now flowing into venture from LPs? And like on an average basis, do we now see 100 billion raised by venture funds? I couldn't give you the macro trends. I can only really talk more micro. Obviously, my partner, Duncan, be great to talk to on the macro trends. But, but what I would say is, is, is at the micro level, if there's been one knock on the early stage ecosystem, it's been the lack of liquidity. Yes, some firms like our firm have embraced secondary liquidity in some of our transactions. It's always a bit of a tough decision and a devil's bargain each way. We, we've tended to do it. We've tended to think that that's a good way to get some money back. But, you know, our first fund is a vintage 2010 fund, and I think it will be one of the absolute best performing funds in the vintage. But in terms of liquidity, boy, we're in year 11. <laughs> I, I still got Ipsy and Braze and Fandle just got bought, right? I mean, that is not an awesome value proposition to an LP when it's, yes, I have multiple multi-billion dollar outcomes and my cash on cash multiple is going to be awesome. Just sit tight for 13 years. That. That's not a super awesome pitch, right? Yeah, and the liquidity cycle has been that for a very, very long time. And, and uh, you know, with SPACs and some of the other things we're seeing, that is truncating. And I have my own views on SPACs and where that market might go. But let's go maybe to a more micro level. And we've talked about the growth and the number of seed firms over the last few, few years in particular. And that number continues to approach if not exceed 2000, especially when you include the part-time investors that are starting rolling funds and investing out of fund sizes that in many cases are less than $5 million. What do you see as the future of this left side of the venture market, the small seed firms? Do you expect continued growth or do you believe that there's going to be some level of consolidation over uh, the next three, five, 10 years? As you know, we jokingly said, what are you going to do when we go from 20 to 200? The fact that we're an extra zero on that number is, is even mind boggling to me and Duncan and Rich, who started a fund because we know it was going to go from 20 to 200. 
So the fact that we're in a spot where it's approaching 2000 is mind boggling. Let's first get that out there. I do think it's going to bifurcate, though. I think that you will maybe continue to see 50 new seed funds a year from founders who have had repeat liquidity, who are recycling the money, largely friends and family, sub 25 million bucks. I think that might be here to stay, and there might be thousands of those funds that happen. But I think the funds that graduate from that to our fund sizes, 125, 150, where you're institutionalized, there is no way that the, the same number can make it through that door. So I think you're going to see the early stage ecosystem bifurcate into the sub $25 million friends and family, repeat founders, liquidity, you know, uh, all my FanDuel former investors are going to go do a bunch of gambling, gambling deal type stuff. I think you're going to see that continue forever. But the door has only got so many slots for the institutional funds that are going to go from 25 to 150 and have the LP backing. I think there's got to be a shoe that drops and a lot of people don't make it through that through that rubric. And a lot of people are going to be in a spot where it's, OK, I can do another 25 million bucks of my own butt money or I got to go do something else. I think that has to happen. And maybe we're starting to see the beginning of that right now. I agree with that. And, and I do think passing that and jumping over that chasm of going from non-institutional to institutional is really tough. And that really goes from, you know, people that are raising those sub $20 million funds to getting to 50, 100 plus with institutional type of LP support. And it's hard. And there's a small group that has done it, but only about 15 to 20% of the entire seed market right now is consistently leading deals, right? So it kind of speaks to the bifurcation that's already happening. I want to end it with our heat check segment, um, which is really three questions, rapid fire. And now that you've been in venture for 11 years after a long operating career, what's the best piece of advice you've got as a venture capitalist? What is it and like, why is it so meaningful to you? Manako gave it to me. It's when I saw FanDuel. I saw FanDuel and I literally thought it was the most simple deal I had ever seen before. It was clear that the company was doing great. They had like 20,000 users and they were making a million dollars. And at that time, 2011, 20,000 registered users making a million dollars. There were no apps doing that. And there, there was nobody in that stratosphere at all. No, no websites doing that. I called Matt up. I go, Matt, I'm sure that this is a winner. Matt told me, he said, Paul, it is rare. You are the only one who sees it. Go do the deal all day long. You're almost certainly right. I wish I felt that way more often. So remember this feeling and try and repeat it as, as many times in your life as possible. It's great advice and it, it, makes, it makes complete sense. After some period of time investing, almost everybody has an anti-portfolio they built. They miss a company. They regret it for whatever reason. What was your biggest investment miss? Who was it? And, and what did you ultimately learn from that experience? So our anti-portfolio is unsatisfying because almost by definition, if we don't invest in the company, it might not make it. So it's difficult because I have CEOs who come to my annual meetings and say, look, Bullpen was my last stop on the board. If they didn't invest, I was going to shut the company down. So I know that my anti-portfolio is fascinating, but I'll never know exactly what it was. That said, there are definitely some companies that we missed on, largely for structural reasons. We stick to our knitting. I mean, one of the great examples of a company, and, and I don't, saying I have regret about it is actually too strong of a word. Chime came in, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the gang over at um, Hunter Walk sent us the deal. 
and said, look, Paul, we're doing a recap. We think this thing is right. We think that the new business line is good. You should really look at it. And Duncan loved the founding team. And actually, we all like the founding team. And we basically said to ourselves, do we want to be known as the company that gets involved in recaps or not? And we ultimately said no, not because we didn't like the team or the business. We actually thought it could be a big outcome. But we thought from a branding perspective, being branded as a fund that got known for doing recaps wouldn't be a good idea. Now, from an economic perspective, being in a deal that's now worth $14 billion probably would have been a good idea. But from a kind of, I don't lose any sleep, but yes, I missed that one, chimes certainly on that list. I think everyone has it. But in your case, it speaks less to missing it for reasons of the investability of the company, but rather the investment thesis that you know you have and sticking to, as you say, you're knitting. You've mentioned a bunch of investors throughout this podcast. Is there an investor out there that you most respect? And if so, like who is that and, and why? The list is long. I mentioned Otco. I mentioned Maples. I mentioned Koppelman. So let me give you one I didn't mention. I think Patrickoff, when he started Graycroft, is, is never really gotten his credit for how ahead of the curve he was. He basically said, I'm going to start a venture firm from a blank sheet of paper I'm going to syndicate deals. I don't need board seats. I, I don't need to own 20%. What if I relaxed all the conventional wisdom of the funds and I started from a blank sheet of paper? And he did that in like about 06 or so. I think he was way ahead of the curve going. A lot of the rules of engagement for venture are based on mythology instead of first principles. And I'm going to prove a lot of people wrong. I have tremendous respect for him because I know even though he was who he was at Patrickoff, a lot of people said that's never going to work. You're you're breaking too many rules. Sorry, I'm not going to invest. Here's somebody in Patrickoff that at 85 raised an, a new fund back in, uh, I, well, I, I guess it was last year, focusing on you know founders that are over 40. So definitely a great role model. Paul, this has been a ton of fun as usual. Really appreciate you being on the show. Great, Samir. Good talking to you as always. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Paul and Bullpen Capital, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.